Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead. Show us what you would want us to see from this chapter and apply it into our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram his son reigned in his stead. And he had brethren, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, and Azariah, and Michael, and Stephantiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and of precious things with fenced cities in Judah. But the kingdom gave he to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was risen up in the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all of his brethren with the sword and also that of princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the king of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, and he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, as he had promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. So starting at verse 1, Jehoshaphat has died, and he's buried in Jerusalem with the rest of the kings, and his son Jehoram takes over in the kingdom. And then it lists his six other brothers, and it says that Jehoshaphat had given them a very large sum of money and cities. Basically, got them out of the way of his brother by giving them places that they could be rulers of and gave them a nice sum of money to be able to get started with. And uh, that's our verses 2 and 3. And he gave them fence cities or very large, you know, large cities, but he gave this kingdom to Jehoram. And it appears that he did, like so many of the kings in the, that day, this was all set up before he died. So there was a lot of times there was a co-regent. Uh, when somebody, when a king would go to go to war where he wasn't sure that he was very sure of getting victory and he knew that his sons would start fighting over the kingdom, oftentimes they would make whatever son they wanted to be king co-regent with them that, and they would go off to war knowing that their son was set up to be king. Didn't always work that way, but it's, it worked that way a lot. David did that with Solomon. He made Solomon king before he died and they were co-regents. At that time, he, David was so weak, he wasn't reigning at, at, at that point. But he made Solomon king while he was still alive, so there had been a, a co, co-regency time. And why would Absalom take it? Well, Absalom was before that. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, well, the, he forced the issue to, for the co-regency. Uh, he forced that co-regency thing, because that's when Bathsheba and and uh, Naaman came in and said, uh, uh, Nathan rather, came in and said, hey, he's, he's trying to make himself king. Didn't you say that Solomon was going to be king? And he goes, yes. And then we had that whole very dangerous point of a divided, potential divided kingdom. And David made Solomon co-regent. But his son, as you were saying, at that point, you technically almost had three kings, except that David hadn't made the one king. So... Uh, you had a very dangerous point in, in the history of Israel. But we see this over and over again. Uh, one of the complaints that people have made when they take the years in, in, in First Kings and Chronicles and they try to match them up, they go, they don't match up. Well, there's co-regencies because they'll, they'll stay, they started after this point when, when their father was still alive and they go, see this all overlaps and, and these dates don't work out right well, because of the co-regencies. Uh, another place where we see a co-regency happen is when Belshazzar called for Daniel in, in Babylon. He said, I will make you third ruler of Babylon if you decipher the writing on the wall. Why was it third ruler? Because he was only co-regent, so he couldn't give him half a kingdom. So he would, could give him, okay, well, I'm taking part of my dad's kingdom as well <laughs> and part of my kingdom, and I'll make you number three, number three ruler. Uh, so he was making a, he was saying, I'll make you a co, co-regent. And that happens frequently. And we're starting to see signs, even England is starting to talk about the possibility of escalating a, the next crown 
up because of Queen Elizabeth's health falling down. And if you're listening to them, you're hearing them talk about who's next. And I wouldn't be surprised if they put that person in place, you know, with all full, with almost full rights without calling them king, but put them in full right of reign and, and actually running things, saying this is the next ruler and for all practical purposes be a co-regent situation. And this happens in kingdoms and monarchies all the time. And so we're seeing this whole idea is this Jehos uh, Jehoram is raised up, put in position. And then it says, when Jehoram was risen up in the kingdom, he strengthened himself. He got everything all under control, all of his, all of his rulers, and killed his brothers. Now, not uncommon in the kingdoms to kill their brothers. It didn't happen very often in the in the uh, Jewish monarchies, but in this case, he was acting just as his brother-in-law in, in Ahab did in uh, 2 Kings 8. His brother-in-law kills off 60 of uh, Ahab's children uh, to make sure he has nobody else to, to fight with him. He goes, oh, that sounds like a really good idea. I'll get rid of all my brothers. Nobody will be able to take the throne from me. This is the wickedness of this king. <laughs> and we get in there and it says he was 32 years old and he reigned for only eight years before he is going to die. And he's going to die a horrible death. We might even get there tonight uh, because this is very much a, a, just a straightforward story as we go forward. And it says he walked in the ways of king, the kings of Israel as the house of Israel, uh, Israel, house of Ahab, for he had the daughter of Ahab for his wife and did the things which is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is one thing we've talked about several times. The kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, had no good kings. Every one of their kings were wicked. And when it says they did after the house of the kings of Israel or followed after Jeroboam, this means they went into idol worship. Jeroboam introduced golden calf worship to, to the northern kingdom, and that was their problem all the way to the very end. They never got rid of golden calf. But during Ahab's day, they were worshiping uh, Baal, and they were worshiping uh, Astoroth. And Ahab's son, now Ahab's son, when you read King, Kings, if you go back and read the same period of time, his son went in and said, okay, we're no, we're no longer going to worship Baal. And he killed all the prophets of Baal and destroyed all the idols, but he did not get rid of the other idols in the kingdom. Were there ever any good kings of, in, in the north? In the northern kingdom, no. No good kings in the, well, no, no godly kings. I'm not going to say no good kings. They had some kings that were great military leaders and expanded the no. nation, but godly, no. None of them, some of them were less evil than others, but they were all evil. <laughs> they all worshipped idols. They all took the people into idol worship. They must all have the same blood. Huh? They must have all had the same blood. <laughs> uh, evil, anyway, yeah. because there they were many dynasties, too. They weren't all the same family. But most of those dynasties were only last four, three or four kings, and then they would kill off all those people, and another, another family would take over. They'd last a couple of generations, and they would kill off that person. And God would say to each one of them, he said the same thing. If you will follow me, I will make your line you know, last. And none of them ever followed him. And the only reason most of the kings of Judah didn't have that is because he made a promise to David, as we saw in this chapter that we just read, and I'll come back to it in just a moment. Uh, he was not going to destroy the line of David completely. He would let hard things happen to those evil kings, but he would not wipe them out. Um, and so he has married into the family of Ahab as well. Remember, Jehoshaphat's problem was that he married into the family of Ahab, uh, Ahab's sister. In this case, he's marrying Ahab's daughter to, to be his wife. And he's bringing evil right into his own house because the, these wives were worshiping foreign gods this was the downfall of Solomon. He married all these women that had foreign gods. He built temples for them. And eventually, his heart was turned to those gods. And we've shared this many, many times. And the scriptures tell us, don't be unequally yoked. And it's just for that reason, because it's easier to be brought down from God's standards than to bring the other person up. 
And people go, well, it happens. I go, yes, it might happen about 1% or 2% of the time, but mostly the godly person is drugged down you know, into whatever it is that's going on. And I've seen it over and over in my lifetime that people are strong Christians. They get married to an un-Christian, un uh, un non-Christian, and the next thing you know, you don't see them in church. You're not reading their Bible. They're not praying. They're you know, having fun on the weekends like the world does and partying on Saturday and Sundays and, and having a good time and doing family outings at the beach or whatever, maybe not even doing evil stuff, but just not following after God. And so this was uh, Jehoram's problem is he follows after his wife's uh, problems and brings this in. Then verse 7 is that little bit of a promise that God says, Howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and as he had promised to give a light unto him and to his sons forever. The promise of the Messiah. The Messiah would come from David's line. So God says, you're getting really evil, terrible kings in this line, but I'm not going to destroy the line of David. Now, many times, just as this here, Jehoram wiped out all of the other, all of the other princes, and we're going to see that in the next chapter, Athaliah is going to eliminate all the other princes except for one. Actually, two chapters away. <laughs> uh, she's going to try to. Many times, Satan has tried to wipe out the line of David, over and over again, and which is what he's done to the entire Jewish nation. You know, we've talked about this many times. Why does Satan want to get rid of the Jewish people? Well, before Jesus came, it was to try to eliminate the Messiah. The Messiah had to come from the line of David, so he tried to wipe out the line of David. When he couldn't wipe out the line of David, he tried to wipe out the entire Jewish population over and over again because if he could wipe out the Jews, the Messiah would not be born by a Jewish parent, as God said. Why has he tried to wipe them out after Jesus' birth? Well, because everything about the end days is about Israel. They're going to be returned to their land. They're going to get their third temple. They're going to have all of these things happen to them. So if he could, again, wipe out Israel, then he says, God, you don't know what you're talking about. See, the prophecies can't come true. That's his whole plan, and that's why Israel is in his crosshairs all the time, because he's trying to make sure that God's prophecies don't come true. Because God's book is full of all kinds of prophecies. They're very specific. You know, they're not generalized. We know exactly what some of them are. We can clearly see them. So Satan knows, if I can just get rid of Israel, there cannot be fulfillment of the prophecies. And so over and over again, he's tried to destroy Israel and will continue to destroy Israel or try to destroy Israel. And we're seeing even into our day, you know, after World War II, and Hitler trying to wipe out the millions of Jews and almost succeeding in many ways to getting rid of them, the world did not go after them. And we're starting to see anti-Semitism really kicking back into high gear again. And we're seeing Satan whip up this frenzy against them. And we're going to see even more as time goes on, trying to get rid of that whole people because God has a promise to them. Get them out of their land because God said they're going to be in their land. Get them out of Jerusalem because God says that's going to be the, their, their, their uh, home, their, their capital. It's where they're going to be the, be the next uh, temple again. It's where Jesus will return to rule. So Satan is trying hard to get rid of all this. And this is what, and God is saying here, I'm not going to let that happen. Yeah, and I love it when God says something's going to happen or not happen. It's, it is exactly what's going to happen. You know, it's going to be just as he said. And our interpretation of it might not be fully understood. The disciples did not understand everything about the Messiah because they ignored all the death statements of the Messiah was going to die and, and, and pay for sin and all of that that was in the scriptures. So they didn't fully understand that when he kept talking about I'm going to die, they're going, does not compute. You're, you're come to rule from Jerusalem and get rid of and make us the center of all all the world, and they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they never thought about these death uh, verses that were in the scriptures. And, you know, we need to be careful that we don't try to say, you know, we know exactly what every one of these verses are going to mean. 
And I've, and I've told that to certain people that teach you know, eschatology a lot, and I'm going, are you sure that that's exactly what it's, what it's going to mean? Because my problem with eschatology is I've been following it since the 70s. And it changes and ebbs and flows as we see different things in, in, in uh, time showing up. You know, we've talked about the biggest one, the, that everybody in the world would see the, the two witnesses in the temple. Well, for years and years, everybody goes, well, we know that that can't happen. Everybody can't watch them, so it has to be a symbolic statement. And in today's world, we know exactly how it would happen. They'll have a satellite channel on them 24-7 on a channel just for them. And we're going, see, God said exactly what he meant. And we've got to be careful trying to spiritualize these things because this is going to get us into trouble. Anytime we don't take it for what it says, even if it doesn't make any sense, we want to be very careful. Because as we go in, the idea of not being able to buy and sell without, without having the mark of the beast. Boy, we're starting to even hear about how they want to make that happen with all the COVID passports and everything they're talking about, how easy it would be for them to shut down the economy if you don't do what the government says. And for years we're going, there's no way you could ever get rid of that. No way you could enforce it. Because we had hard currency that if, as long as you had currency, you could, you could find somebody who would take the currency. And now that we do not have valid hard currencies anymore and we're pushing for even less hard currency, you know, if everybody's been paying attention to the news, they're talking about using bitcoins and digital, digital coins now instead of having real money. And that's becoming very popular. The governments are starting to think this is a good way to, to monitor how people spend money. And they're starting to think, well, this will shut down drug trafficking and, and human trafficking because we'll know everywhere where the money's being spent and there would not be able to spend money without us knowing exactly what was bought. And we're going, wow, and God, you said that's exactly what was going to happen. And we're seeing all of these things happen very literally, not just figuratively as we used to think of them to be. How I got off on that, I don't know. So, verse 8. <laughs> In his day, the Edomites revolted from under the dominion of Judah and made themselves a king. Then Jehoram went forth with his princes and all his chariots with him, and he rose up by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him in and the captains of the chariots. So the Edomites revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. The same time also did Libna revolt from under his hand because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compelled Judah thereto. All right. With all of his evil, we remember for the last two kings, they've been right, righteous kings. They've put all these nations in subjection. They've been paying tribute to them. They are tributaries, uh, paying, paying taxes every year to the king of, kingdom of Judah. And in his day, first off, it says the Edomites revolted and said, nope, we're not, gonna, we're not paying you tribute anymore. And we got our own king. We're not following you anymore. And he went in, and apparently his army's still pretty strong because he put them, you know, beat them in battle, but he was not able to subject them to him, according to the scripture. And Libna revolted at that same time, and all of this says is because he had rejected God. You know, this is a really hard thing as we look at what goes on. Jerohoram's Jer sin before God and pushing the nation into sin led to national unrest and battles going on. And I'm reading all this stuff and looking at going, how many battles has the United States been engaged in since we started rejecting God and pushing all the different sins upon the people in this world? Now, we'll say, now they'll say, well, the people want it. Well, it may or may not be true. It's irrelevant. The leadership is pushing it as well, and there's consequences for those sins. His father and his grandfather put Israel on a righteous path. He comes in and starts throwing out everything that they had been doing right. He's starting to cause all these people to worship other idols. He's rejecting God because he's married to a woman who has been worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, and I'm sure she influenced him into this whole process as well. He has had a mother 
who was also into these same, same gods and everything, and I'm sure she influenced him. And both of these women probably influenced him more than his father as to worshiping God. So now he's, when he comes to power, he's got this idea of trying to worship at least three gods. The God of his father, the God of his mother, and his, and, and his, and his wife. And it's going to have a hard time because God does not share his role. He says, I am God, you will have no other gods before me. And he's bringing in all this idol worship, and God says, all right, first big punishment, your national peace is gone. And you know, and think about how many wars has America been involved with in the, over the last several decades, you know, maybe even century, as we have pulled away from God and pulled away from God. And people are not recognizing a lot of that as judgments from God. But, you know, when you start piecing together decisions that are made with the wars that happen, decisions that are made against Israel and the bad things that happen, the, the decisions to have sin be codified into law and see the results of this, and you're going, God did this, and God has not changed. He still has consequences for evil. And those consequences may not be recognized by people. doesn't matter whether they recognize it or not. Now, I look around and I'm seeing God has judged in the past with war, famine, disease, uh, economic failures. And what's happening to America? War, diseases, famine, economic failures, weather, weather. And you're going, God did it all in the past. And I am saying that he's doing it in America. He's trying to get people's attention and saying, wake up. Wake up, people. You're going against me. And we need to be careful because this has always happened. And we read the Old Testament and we go, well, gee, man, God was terrible back then. Look at all these things that happened to people. And then we don't recognize that what's happening to America and all the other godly countries that used to be godly. And look at all the judgments that are falling on them, just like he did to Israel. And saying, wake up, turn back, repent. And what do people say? Not going to. Not going to repent. I don't see this as from God. It's just terrible bad luck or whatever they want to call it. You know, I don't know what people call it out there anymore, but I know it's, it's not attributed to God. And most pastors are afraid to attribute it to God because they don't want to be signaled out for you know, being a crazy lunatic. But God has done it in the past. He's doing it still today. And we'll say that over and over again. And I think if we get back to our righteousness, a lot of the stuff that's going on in our country will fall away. I hope we can have a revival. And as I've said before, I'm not sure we will, but I also know that God brings revival when it's least expected. So hopefully we will and we'll return. Otherwise, we will be judged just like these nations were do, and these kings were judged. And then it says in verse 11, after the Edomites and the Libna rebuilt against it, it says, Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Israel to commit fornication and to compel Judah to do. And this is kind of a really hard thing. He's building high places, temples on the mountains, just as other kings have done. And these are not for God. This would be for Gamesh and Moloch and Ashtaroth and Baal and all the other gods and goddesses out there. He's building temples for them. And it's very interesting. And he caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication or prostitution before, before their, these gods. And then the language on it is that he literally made laws of something or did something to make them worship. Now, how that worked, I have no idea. Could it be like uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he called all the people in front of that statue and said, bow down or else? Quite likely. He made some kind of law that pushed people into idol worship. And being king, he could do that kind of thing. But, you know, I wonder sometimes about, even in our country, how many laws are made that people may not directly be pushed into it, but because it's now legal to do the wrong thing, they do the wrong thing because there's no consequence to it. There's no uh, 
physical consequence, even though there's a spiritual consequence, and they forget that it's still against God's laws. But they're going, well, the government says it's okay, so it's okay. Our biggest battle in our country right now is this whole abortion issue that's going on, where people are going, well, the courts have said for 50-plus years it, it's okay to murder your child, and so you've got to keep that. You know, and it's like, no, God says it's wrong. No matter what you think, God says it's wrong. Even if you don't believe in God, you're going to answer to God. And that's our big battle right now. But, he, but we still have the battle going on between homosexuals and transgenderism as well. We have so many fronts going on where God is saying these things are wrong and the government is saying, no, they're okay by us. And there will be consequences before God for all of this happening on. And we have to recognize this. And this is what's going to make things difficult for us as Christians. As the world is getting darker and darker, our light shines brighter and brighter. And the darkness of the world does not like light. Sin does not like light. And so what are they going to do? They're going to try to tear down the light. That or hide from the light. But, you know, as there's only a handful of lights out there. And this is the same thing because so many Christian churches are backing away from truth, backing away from being light, so that we do not have the bright, shining light that we've had during the revival years when the light would shine and people going, oh, we can't sin because there's a bright light around us. Now they're going, well, you know, there's only like five or six lights. All we got to do is put out the lights and we're going to be, we'll be able to do what we want. Now God says, I'm always going to have a remnant. There's always going to be a light. But the world is saying, we're going to silence those lights. So the more we stand for God, the more the world is going to try to silence us. To the degree of possible martyrdom, belittling, putting us aside, trying to make us look like fools. You know, they like to try to do all of that stuff. And the problem is some people just, because they're afraid, back down and don't say a word. We cannot allow that to happen. God is on our side. He will fill our mouth with words if we will just be bold and be obedient to him and just stand. Because, you know, what's the best thing they can do for us? They can send us home. And that's all martyrdom does is send us home. They can belittle us, which is hard. We might lose, we might lose things. They might make it painful without killing us. And then we'll be like the disciples. Thank God I was found worthy to suffer for God. We need to make sure that is our mindset. What is our mindset when we're going to challenge because the world is going to come against and try to cause problems for Christians and God? And as the world gets darker, it becomes easier and easier for them to make this attack on us because they feel like the majority is on their side. And we need to be very careful because I love the statement that when God's on your side, you're in the majority. Me plus God is a, is a majority. doesn't matter how many people are standing against me. They may even think they're winning. But one day they're going to stand before God and give an account of what they have done to his people and to his law. And we need to make sure that we're understanding stand for God because that is what it's going to need. He builds all these idols. He causes the people to commit fornication and, and, and worship. God calls any worship of other gods a, a fornication, but the word seems to hear that he's actually, you know, literally the word for that fornication is forced prostitution. So I don't know if it was talking about worshiping Astoroth and many of those other fertility gods and goddesses, which did involve uh, actual prostitution, in the, in the temple, or if he's just calling it the fact that, you know, they're worshiping other idols. It could be either one of those. And all of this is what's going down is God is saying, I don't want this to happen. And his king is taking them into the darkest of all things to worship other gods. Bad enough that they're going to sin, but the king is leading them into this sin as well. And this is the problem. You know, we know that individuals have accountability before God. But the Bible very clearly talks that leaders 
have responsibility before God as well for the groups that they lead at all levels and that national leaders have responsibilities and they're going to answer these you know presidents these senators these guys that are making the laws that are going against God and leading this country astray will eventually have to stand before God and give account for their own life and give account for their responsibilities they had in leadership and this is why God even tells pastors and teachers many of you not ought not to be teachers for the account of the the accountability is stronger we lead people's lives there's an accountability to a teacher there's an accountability for a pastor that and a governor and a president and all these people in power of authority you're accountable for what you do to the people and for the people that look to you as their leader and that's a very sobering uh, thought process when you understand it and the problem is too many of the world do not understand that they have an accountability to those who they're uh, leading astray. What we have is government officials trying to do things their way. And they're looking just from the world's point of view is I'm in charge and the person in charge gets to do what they want to do. And they don't recognize that they're not in charge. God is in charge and God is going to have his way. And this is the problem with the world. The world does not understand that there's authority above them. And they don't until they finally bend their knee to God. And they think they get to wherever it is they want to get. And they're going, this has not brought me happiness. I'm not, I'm not getting where I want to be. And all of a sudden, they're finding the emptiness. And they won't recognize what that emptiness is until they stand before God and find out God was what they needed or have somebody witness to them enough to get through, get through to them that they needed God. And all of this comes down to he's compelling them to, to do these sins. And now we have God stepping in. Verse 12, And there came a writing to him from Elisha the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David your father, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Israel to go a whoring into the whoredoms of the house of Ahab and also has slain your brothers, the brothers of your father's house, which were better than you. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite your people and your children and your wives and your goods, and you shall have great sickness by disease in your bowels until your bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. All right, here's God's call to him from Elisha. He goes, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat and Asa, his father and his grandfather. You have not followed God. Now, they weren't perfect in their following of God, but at least they followed God. They weren't encouraging everybody to, to not follow him. Uh, but you have walked in the kings in the ways of the kings of Judah and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a whoring. Now this is a really hard term. You know, you have made them seek other gods. After the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, which means probably Baal and Estoroth, because those were the two gods that they major gods that they followed. And also you have slain your brethren, your your father. So he's remembering that that one. You killed your brothers. You have walked away from God and brought in idols. And then he goes, and your brothers were better than you. <laughs> okay. Uh, more agreeable. They were right. They were good. Now, I don't know how perfect they would have been. They probably would have been better kings. But he goes, they would have been better. They are better. <laughs> they were better than you, and you killed them. And, and it says, behold, a great plague, and this is literally a slaughter, Will the Lord smite the people, the children, the wives, and all of your goods? So God's judgment is falling on the entire nation, his children, his wives, and all that he possesses. Now, this is, this is quite a plague, and it falls on the nation. Why? Because they are following him into the sin. Right? They are not guiltless just because you know, they're following the king. 
This goes to what the disciples said to the Sanhedrin when they go, didn't we tell you not to worship in the name of Jesus? And they go, we ought to obey God rather than man, but they would take the punishment of man. So these people in the nation are, are guilty. They followed after these other gods, even though the king is, has a greater guilt, he led them into it. And this is what I've said, you know, if I teach something wrong or a pastor teaches something wrong, they are wrong. And they're going to be doubly accountable because they teach others wrong. But that doesn't mean that the people hearing are free either because, as, we, as I've said many times, we're as students supposed to be good Bereans looking at the scriptures and saying, what I'm being taught is wrong, I'm, I'm not going to follow it. Yes. So they did have... Yeah, Asa and Jehoshaphat were good kings, mostly. Toward the end of their lives, they did some things that really weren't good, but for the most part, they were good kings leading the people to God. Jehoram comes in, and he doesn't have... Nowhere in the, in the scriptures do we read anything good that he does for, for God. He takes them right in. He builds temples. He built, in eight years, he builds temples on the high places. So, I mean, he's putting a lot of effort into these temples. He is full bore evil. And the people are following after him. Now, we all understand, because this is what's happening in our world, when the government allows evil, people in the flesh want to go ahead and do that evil and say, hey, everybody says it's okay. It's, it's what I wanted to do anyway, so it's okay. It's those crazy, crazy religious types over there that say it's not okay but the nation was going to be judged. His whole family was going to be judged. His goods, everything that he owned is going to be judged. And then it says, and you shall have a great sickness by disease in, of your bowels until your bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. Now, this is a horrible sounding disease and most, I was looking it up to see if anybody had any possible medical conditions that this would be, and there was two of them that, that were brought up. One would be what they call benign uh, prolapse of the uh, intestine, where they literally start poking out of your, 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 your rectum uh, because the muscles and everything dwindle down and your intestines basically start falling out of your body. Not completely like it would sound in here, but protruding out some and would be followed with hemorrhoids and all those other nice wonderful painful activities other groups say that it sounds more like colon cancers at its most extreme stages which has the same problems as as pro, uh, prolapse so basically it is that his inner intestines are starting to come out with bloating and all the other things that stage four cancer starts doing bloating and Losing, losing control and, and all these things. So it sounds very horrible. And it sounds very much like a type of cancer destroying the lower part of his body, causing distended bloating and all of that other activity that goes on. All I know is that God says it was going to look at least like his intestines, were, you know, that his intestines and everything were coming out of his body. And that literally would be what a collapsed, a benign prolapse would have been or the colon cancer would have actually literally started dropping the intestine out of his body. But when it first starts out, and when we have it in our day because they catch it so easy, they're only talking five to seven centimeters of your intestine falling out of your body. Uh, this is 3,500 years ago. Uh, it started falling out. It probably would not stop. <laughs> the muscles were not going to re-strengthen back in there. So this is going to be a horrible... And I did a lot of research trying to figure out exactly what it meant to have his intestines falling out of his body and uh, it's been described in other places it sounds extremely painful if it's anything like hemorrhage I can't imagine having your intestines starting to poke out it's got to be painful at that time they would not have had surgery to fix it and repair it but this is his punishment he says your people are going to have a play are going to be slaughtered and you are going to have a major disease that, it, that you're going to not want. And you know, that's, that is what he's told by Elisha. And then we read, 
Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians and the Ethiopians, and they came to Judah and broke into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives, so that there was never a son left him save Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. And after this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And it came to pass that in the process of time, after the end of two years, his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness. So he died of a sore disease, of sore diseases, and his people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. Thirty-two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and departed without being desired. Howbeit they buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulchres of the kings. So here is the fulfillment. First he was told there was going to be a great slaughter. It says plague in the, in the King James was literally a slaughter. How did God accomplish that? He stirred up the Philistines, the Arabians, and the Ethiopians. Three nations to come and, to come and battle against him. And they were successful. They, they broke into Judah, and they came to Judah and broke in and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house. So all of his treasures... That was the, the last one of our list, that his goods would be taken. And then it says, and all of his sons, and I note here, again, God's blessing, except the youngest, Jehoiaz. Why? Because God needed to have the line of David continue so that the light would be returned, would be, be, be able to come through this. Jehoiaz is going to be the next king when his father dies, and God says, I'm keeping one. All the other kids, I don't know how many, how many kids he has because I didn't look it up, but all of his other sons are taken captive and probably killed. And his youngest one survives because God says, I am going to keep my covenant. And he keeps that son. And, and his wives were taken just as the promise was. Your nation's going to have a great slaughter. Your children, your wives, and your goods. All was taken, except for him and his youngest son. I don't know how his youngest son, I don't remember how his youngest son got, got away. I think it was in Kings that was talked about that. But he's hidden away and protected. And then it says, and it came to pass in the process of time, at the end of the, uh, oops, 18, and after, after all of this, after all this battle, after losing his family, after losing his wives, after losing his wealth, he starts getting his disease in the bowel that is incurable. Now, if it is the cancer, it's probably the stage four cancer, bloating and pain and, and all of this stuff that goes on with it, uh, the, the distended uh, prostate, and it starts with it, and nobody can cure it. So it's talking about somehow he's seeing doctors and whatever doctors they have at that time and giving whatever it is they did for that type of pain. And nothing happened, and it says, in the process of time, after the end of two years, he suffers for two years. Now, I don't know how many people have ever had any major pains in their life, you know, we, we, you know, We've all had some pains in our lives at some point. But imagine your, your most horrendous pain that you have ever experienced and then let it go for two straight years without any let up. Now, the longest time I had was a gout, gout attack for six months. That was a long time. It was wearing. I don't know what it would have been like to have two years. This was his punishment to endure physical pain for two years. Now I also attach that to his psychological and emotional pain. All of his kids are dead. His wives are dead. He, all the money for his kingdom is gone. And he's in physical pain and emotional pain. And add to that the spiritual pain, knowing that it's all his fault because that's what Elisha said was going to happen. Now, this is pretty serious issue going on. God is coming at him from every single direction on him. Physically, spiritually, and emotionally, he is in pain for two years. That is, you know, and that's not even going to be what, what hell was going to be like, which he's facing after, after his death, if he never converted and, and repented. You know, this was two years on earth of what we would say hell on earth, 
And yet there would be nothing compared to what was facing him if he never turned his life around and repented. For two years, and then it says his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness. And he died of this, what they call sore disease. And then it says, and his people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. Now, there are a couple of translations that incorrectly tr lead you to think that they cremated him. That was not what the Jews did. And the Jews to this day do not do crem cremations. But this burning, uh, I'm going to read from Jeremiah 34, verse 5. But you shall die in peace, and with the burnings of your fathers, the former kings which were before you, so they shall burn odors for you, and they shall lament you, saying, Ah, Lord, you, I have pronounced the word of the Lord. This whole idea of odors, odors, they would burn sweet woods and spices. And the idea was the spirit, lift up the spirit upon these, these good smells. Uh, God often talked about the sweet-smelling savor of the of the sacrifices. So they weren't burning the kings. They would say, here is a fire in honor of them that burns these nice sweet-smelling woods and, and spices that were to be saying, this is the honor. And he did not get that honor. Two years of, you know, two years of pain in him probably kept him from showing up very often. The nation's been totally devastated. And I am sure that Elijah's message was not kept in secret. The people knew this was coming because the prophet said that this was coming. And they knew that all of this was happening because of the disobedience of their king. Uh, if you know, we think about this, how many of our leaders in our country have become unpopular? For whatever reason, even good or bad reasons, they can become unpopular and really get to the place where they can't even show their face anywhere because of how unpopular they are. I think that's where he was. And when he died, it's like, uh, well, put him in a grave. We don't care, but we're not going to give him any, no, no casket in the, in, in, in the, in the temple, no casket in the, in the palace for everybody to parade, parade through and give their honor to, you know, no, no pr profession on it. It's just, okay, he's dead. Get rid of this body where good, good riddance, good riddance for, for that he's gone, get him in a grave, no, no honoring, no, no, no special ceremonies for him. And this is what he's being described as. There was no special honor. The king is dead. You know, the king is dead, long live the new king. <laughs> uh, good riddance to this guy. And, you know, this was how unpopular he was. Now, as a king, even if you're unpopular, they can't, can't get rid of you that easy in those days unless somebody was to rise up and, and actually try to kill you. Uh, but if you have a kingdom that is going to continue, you had to wait till that king died or was assassinated. And this is what they were waiting for. You know, the prophecy went out. The kingdom was attacked. It took him two years to die of his disease. And then there was no ceremonies and no celebrations for him when he died. They just put him in a grave with no ceremony. And then it just goes on to say one more thing here that it says, oh, uh, they made no division. And, and 32 years old was he when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years and departed without being desired. This word desired means beloved or honored. So he was a king that nobody cared you know, about his dying. It's like, okay, good, let's get, his, let's get his son in here. Let's see if Jehoiakim can be a good king. Got to be better than the previous king was their hope. Uh, and no desire, but they did bury him in Jerusalem, but not in the sepulcher of the kings. So he was not buried with his fathers. He wasn't buried in the family plot. He was sent someplace else. So here is a very quick study of Jehoram. Not much more is said about him in 2 Kings. We, they only have about a half a chapter about him. Uh, you know, so he's not, not real well known. He gets more, more press in the, in the study of the kings of Judah than he did in the, in the book of all the kings. But he doesn't get a whole lot said about him because he was a totally wicked 
king, and they were not honoring him. And we've said this in, already. The book of Chronicles is tending to emphasize the good things that the kings do. It mentions the bad that they do, but it really emphasizes the good. The book of Kings gives a lot more of the evil done on both sides of things, uh, but Chronicles really emphasizes the good that the kings are doing and just glosses over the evil because it's really showing, in, in Chronicles, it's showing God's hand in the, keeping his kingdom, God's hand in keeping the, the line of David going. And so they gloss over a lot of the evil of David's, David's, fam, uh, David's family line and just kind of really highlights the, the positives. And, and somebody like Je, Je, uh, Je, Jehoram, he's there, you got to deal with him. So, and there was nothing good to say about him. So they just give one quick chapter and, and, and end his life because there's nothing good to say about him. And how would you like your entire life summed up that quick? You know, eight years, and there's, we've got 20 verses on his, on his eight years of reign. Because he had so much evil that he did, and nobody was there to say anything good about him. He never did any good. He never cleansed the temple. He never did anything that was of great value. And his whole life is wrapped up with nobody cared about him. He was not desired by his people. And that has got to be a sad epitaph for him. You know, everybody I know and I myself, you know, I hope that one day when I die, people will say something nice about me. You know, uh, you know not we're glad he's dead. And that's what they're saying about Jehoram. Good riddance. King is dead. Let's get somebody else in here. Let's see if we can get a better, better king in here. See if things will go right. And that was the epitome of him. He led his nation into destruction and died a horrible death because of all of it, all the sins that he was leading them in. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We thank you on this. Help us to make right decisions and to always seek your face and to follow you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.